0: Welcome to Dangerous Wisdom, a journey into mystery and a gateway to the mind of nature and the nature of mind. This is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, happy to be here with you so that together we can create a culture of wisdom, love, and beauty. Auspicious interbeing to you and yours, my friends. Today I am joined by Sunny Strasberg, LMFT. Sunny is a psychedelic trainer, consultant, therapist, and presenter. Mrs. Strasberg is an EMDR-certified trauma specialist, experienced and certified in psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy and trained in internal family systems. Mrs. Strasberg is a graduate of the Certification for Psychedelic-Assisted Therapy from the California Institute of Integral Studies, trained in ketamine, MDMA, psilocybin-assisted psychotherapies. Sunny is the clinical director at TRIP Assist, developing virtual reality psychedelic support for therapists. Sunny offers ketamine therapy retreats, which she co-leads with Dr. Richard Schwartz, the originator of Internal Family Systems. She is a senior trainer at the Ketamine Training Center, co-facilitating KAP training with Bessel van der Kolk, Phil Wolfson, and other leaders in psychedelic and trauma psychology. Mrs. Strasberg also leads psychedelic therapy workshops and trainings around the world. Sunny also specializes in attachment trauma, using an eclectic approach with the Gottman Couples Method and Jungian psychology. She offers ketamine-assisted therapy with individual sessions and group therapy retreats. Sunny has developed original protocols using ketamine-assisted therapy and other trauma treatment methods, which she presents at conferences such as the 2021 EMDRIA Worldwide Virtual Conference, EMDRI-UK, and the Boston Trauma Conference. Sunny co-founded the nonprofit organization Indra's Net Coalition. She is trained by MAPS, Compass Pathways, Ketamine Research Foundation, and Synthesis. Sunny hosts therapy retreats in Utah, Maryland, California, Wyoming, and Costa Rica. You can find out more at SunnyStrasburgTherapy.com. I'll have that link in the show notes. Sunny, welcome to Dangerous Wisdom.
1: <laughs> Thanks, So It's great to be here.
0: Well, we were just talking right before we began about a, a retreat you did not far from here in the Maksa Reja, the Santa Cruz Mountains. Uh, would you like to reflect a little bit about that? Maybe it would give us an idea of what, what some of what you do.
1: Absolutely. It was so beautiful at 1440 in multiversity, which sounds like it's close. Uh, the the trees there hold an incredible energy. The space is so beautiful. Um, so yeah, so Richard Schwartz and I hosted a therapy retreat there. We had several leaders who are in positions of influence attend and really looked at what it might be like to help people unburden trauma and fear, anxiety, depression, and lead from a place of self. Um, Self are things like compassion, calm, centeredness, curiosity. So all of these components of self-led leadership and what does that look like to heal oneself and then go forward and and let that ripple effect out in all these decisions that they make and leadership and corporate worlds that they are in.
0: That's really um, interesting because I was just thinking recently about Nietzsche, sometimes thought of as one of the great philosophers of the body. Isadora Duncan used to carry a copy of Zarathustra with her everywhere, the great dancer Isadora Duncan, and she referred to him as our dancing philosopher. And Mm. Nietzsche, he says, well, you know, the thing is that uh, we have two kinds of philosophizing, from illness and from health. And most of the dominant culture's philosophy has been philosophizing from a place of, of illness. And that means that your philosophy is an expression of, of dis-ease. And so uh, philosophy is just how we do things. So that means that our leaders all have philosophies of leadership, philosophies. That's how they do things from day to day. And unconsciously, that was part of Nietzsche's point, is we are leading from our traumas, our wounds, our insecurities, our anxieties. But we don't see that because the rational mind tells the story on top of it and says, well, this is the way it's supposed to be.
1: That's really amazing. I like that the dancing, she she said he was the dancing philosopher, is that what you said?
0: That's what she called our me, dancing philosopher, as hotel. in our, <laughs> our culture's dancing philosopher. Yeah,
1: yeah our, and giving birth to the dancing star, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <The chaos. laughs> um, yeah, you know, I, I think about this a lot in regards to psychedelic to bring it into my wheeled house, wheelhouse. Um, you know, we look at psychedelics as treating disease, right? Mental illness. And psychedelics are really amazing for well people to become more creative. I've often thought about how in our Western culture, we're so afraid of recreational drugs, recreation. You know, if you look at the etymology of recreation, it's recreating, it's creativity, right? And what's so wrong to come from a place of wanting to reinvigorate your creativity, right? And so, um, yeah, I think that that we really do in this monotheistic culture that it collapses everything down to one answer, one reality, and all the philosophy that has emanated from that, rather than a polytheistic culture where there are many answers to many questions, right? Or this one answer, and it often emanates from a place of curing something wrong. Instead of relying on this inherent well-being that is our birthright that just shines forward. You know, a lot of the therapy that I do comes from a place of really believing that there's this inherent wisdom and inherent goodness and inherent purity to each of us. And therapy isn't about becoming someone else and going somewhere else, right? You're really just uncovering who you really are. That inherent goodness and purity and health is radiating from within you, and we're just uncovering everything that blocks that. So it's a a different paradigm, you know, to think about uh, health and mental health in that way.
0: Yeah, yeah, sometimes... uh, uh we can think of it as a difference between uh, an orientation of sculpture in which the, we're revealing something that's in there or painting where we have to put it on the canvas. And that's kind of where the postmodern turn went. You know, some philosophers like Foucault were insisting out blank canvas and you put whatever you know you want on there and uh, more conservative philosophers like Pierre Audeau would say, no, there's a sculpture in there. But it's interesting what you're saying, Uh, There's nothing wrong with our own culture's attempt to express that, so to speak. I mean, it's when we talk about the dominant culture, it's this clump of uh, groups who would not ordinarily think are necessarily so related. I mean, you know, how different are my uh, family lineage people who lived in Crete from people who live in London? It's a very different uh, kind of thing. (laughs) But but nevertheless, if we think that one of the books, and maybe that's what unifies the dominant culture is a series of texts, which is also a weird thing to consider. But the Bible says that we're made in the image of the divine. There's a basic goodness that's right there at the core of the tradition. Nothing wrong with working with it, but... Like anything, it's almost like you could say it's not the fault of any tradition that it falls prey to spiritual materialism because every tradition can fall prey to it. I mean, you look how beautiful and peaceful Buddhism is supposed to be, but it was used in World War II as part of the war machine. And there's nothing about, I mean, there's, I think Buddha <laughs> right. would have been horrified, you know. So similarly, to find out we're made in the image of the divine, but that there's something wrong with us is <laughs> a weird mm-hmm. kind of uh, tension yeah. in the soul, isn't it?
1: Totally. Yeah. But I think even with that conversation, it's, I really love to think about holding the tension of opposites, right? And that everything inherently in this world, in this plane of reality seems to hold a potential duality, right? And so not needing to come to a finality of purity and perfection, right? Which I think easily ends up being spiritual bypassing because we're not really holding the shadow and the darkness within us. And there's something I think really beautiful about exploring all of the facets of um, good and bad and everything in between. You know, if you look at, um, I love talking to a philosopher like you, you know, because you're so well-versed in all these different ideas. Um, but, you know, Paradigms that are polytheistic often have gods and goddesses that are very complex that all that have good and bad contained within them, and they're and they're very multifaceted. Um, and there's this polyvalence that happens with these relationships that we that we can develop with these different gods and goddesses. But but I think that we really get hung up in in our culture around coming to this purity that's this one finality, you know, and I don't have the answer. I'm just really curious about that. And I like to think about that when I'm working in mental health. And what does that look like when people really have this desire to come to this place of perfection, and I'm not going to be happy or satiated until I get there. And really, we're just walking this path and walking this path. And there's something new, we're walking this path, and we really never get to a destination, right?
0: It sounds like you and Isadora Duncan would both really like Nietzsche. You might love him. That's in fact specifically what he says, this idea, that this view that there's a, a final purity. Now, he's struggling in part because he wants to be a Western Buddha. And Buddha did believe that there was such a thing as you're done with suffering. And the nice thing about him is he doesn't talk to us like we're beneath him. He's saying that all of us have it, but that there is this kind of uh, liberation, and it's just when Mm. you're free, you're free. It doesn't mean that you don't keep creating, because, you know, what happens when you become free is you start creating Buddha fields. Those would be fields Mm -hmm. of awakening that draw mm. other beings into their own unique path and, and support him in the things that they very specifically need in order to create more uh, wisdom, love, and beauty in the cosmos. But uh, they still have that view. On the other side, not that I, you know, I sometimes find myself a surprising uh, defender of good things in the Judeo-Christian tradition because I think there are beautiful things in it, and that's partly why Mm -hmm. Nietzsche kind of lamented, like, we killed God, and you don't understand what a problem this is. But look at the Mm -hmm. book of Job. It is directly expressing that God is not what you you can't intellectually encompass. Mm -hmm. Job goes through all of this. Why? you know why is that mm-hmm. and there's this mystery that he's confronting and i even like the way uh, chesterton uh, uh gk chesterton reads that which is to say see on the one hand you might read it and and job is saying look what's you know what what is really going on here and god says you know you don't know anything <laughs> where were you whenever I laid the foundations for this place, you know? And so you might, on the one hand, just imagine, oh, it's all so complex, and there is this play of mystery and unknown that we're never going to get our heads around. But Chesterton reads it like God saying, I made it, and I don't understand it all. (laughs) (laughs) When he goes through this list of things, like, I don't know, (laughs) you know? So bad things happen to you, yes, and there is this play of of opposition and and duality that you have to you are going to have to resolve in your own way. Yes,
1: yeah. it's. I had this really interesting experience once in a psychedelic journey where um, it was almost like in a local level suffering is very real, absolutely real, right? Absolutely, so much of our suffering is thinking about the past or worrying about the future acute in the moment suffering is is luckily fairly rare but it's very real but in this understanding it was like in on a local level suffering is very real visceral intense if you pulled the lens out big enough to a spiritual space where energy is neither created nor destroyed and everything is eternal and there's this profound okayness in the unfolding of everything because there is no linear time right that then suffering is this local phenomenon if we can pull the lens back far enough right and so is enlightenment being able to pull the lens out to that view that's not this simian human monkey body <laughs> level of understanding where I'm driven to survive and my brain makes linear time and all of these things and out into this cosmic level of understanding, right? But but we have this problem of not being able to transcend our human vantage point while we're in this meat body. <laughs> you know, It's a really interesting thing. So then you're always questioning, do I really understand? do I really have the capacity to understand. I don't know if we do from this lens and maybe that's really amazing and beautiful and okay.
0: Yeah, there you're 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 expressing the I think a, Bo- a very Buddhist view and mm-hmm. it's it's beautifully expressed in the Avatamsaka Sutra which I in the series on psychedelics I, I recommended that because it is a maybe the most psychedelic text. Uh, you know, it's it's uh, it's an expression of enlightenment that shows that idea of the that what happened under the tree when when you, if you just looked at Buddha, you don't realize there's this entire cosmic thing that he's experiencing that is unfolding, and it's a, quite a beautiful thing. But then, didn't we just get these Nobel Prize winners? And what what did the Nobel Prize this year? Uh, go to, the people who verified that the universe or the cosmos is not locally real, but it is non-locally real. That's what the Mm. quantum experiments demonstrated, that they were showing there is no local reality, but David Bohm and Buddha and others were saying, yes, but there is a non-local reality. And even you're touching right as you would, good Jungian, on on what synchronicity (laughs) does. Synchronicity ruptures. (laughs) That I- imaginary localization of the self inside mm-hmm. a bag of skin. And mm-hmm. it also seems to even open <laughs> up maybe part of what ketamine does because I don't, I'm not familiar with, th- with this medicine, so maybe you can explain a little bit how it works. But so far in my reading about it, it seems that what is happening is a dropping away of the, of the body yeah. and mind that habitually holds us in that localized form. Very much like uh, you know, Dogen described meditation is dropping away body and mind; as they fall off. Mm-hmm. But please, can, you a t- can you That's beautiful.
1: I just love your in your articulation. I'm just soaking that in. That's a beautiful way to orient to the ketamine conversation. There's so many directions I could take this, but you're right on. I mean, you know, it's ketamine's an amazing molecule. I'll start by saying that. There are many ways of administering it, many routes of administration, each with its own signature. So it almost feels like a different medicine with different routes of administration and different dosages, which is very different than the other psychedelics. It binds to different receptor systems in the brain. So it's not a purely 5-HT2A receptor binding molecule. It binds to that, but it binds to all kinds of other receptors, kappa opioid receptors, the GABAergic receptor system, and something, you know, it's called a dissociative anesthetic, which is kind of, a, I think, a misnomer. It, really high doses, you know, you can take ketamine and have your wisdom teeth taken out, so that would justify that title. But at lower doses, it's incredibly connecting. It's incredibly associating because, I think because, to your point, it pulls us out into the observer self. We're able to have enough detachment from the stories of our autobiographical life, that we can view them from a distance. And there's something really, really profound about that. Um, It's, but there's all kinds of content that can come up with ketamine. And, you know, I've done my own experiences where It can be so unusual and so surprising that it really does make you quite have these kinds of questions like what is reality am i in just some slice of reality that's (laughs) you know this consensual reality that i'm participating in but there are all these other realities i've been really really interested in this idea am i discovering something that exists outside of my mind or am i inventing this is is the chemical moving with my mind and extrapolating the data that's in my mind almost like these AI programs that scrape the internet? Is it just scraping all of my thoughts and then feeding them back to me in this magnificent way? And I don't really know. It's it's probably both. <laughs> but it is a very interesting medicine to work with. And, you know, and then there's a whole other discussion about how beautifully practical it is to use in therapy contexts. For practitioners, because it's a short acting, relatively, it's a two hour experience rather than the ten hour experience of psilocybin. So there's this whole other conversation about how using it therapeutically is is really beneficial for therapists and clients. So we can take this discussion in all kinds of directions.
0: Mm, mm, yeah, yeah, I see that. I you know I sometimes do have this uh, vision that the way we move through the cosmos is in an, in always in an imagined body. And this is the one we're imagining. But if we l- learn to use our imagination differently, then we get a different vehicle. It'd be like you have to build your ship to go into outer space. And depending on what ship you build, that's the space you can go in. And sometimes the psychedelics <laughs> or spiritual experience can build you a ship that can go <laughs> to very different yeah, dimensions, <laughs> right? So it's sort of like, what suit am I going to put on? And, and so there, it is, in other words, this is what you're saying. It's like it's both. It's as if the cosmos is imaginal. And then, but at the same time, not, not you know not without since all the beings are imagining, then there's a kind of reality too then there is some, there's a <laughs> non duality of discovery and creation, but that's wonderful because I also think it must be sometimes uh, spiritual practitioners who are a little deeper into say both of these worlds will sometimes talk about the working with these medicines as a stress test or a um, an accelerator for one's spiritual practice. Because when you enter an experience like this that is so different, you're really going to find out what your level of preparation was and what your, <laughs> where the limits of your practice are. But then therapeutically, that must be also what's happening. Whereas the you know, wisdom traditions might say, since philosophy is therapeia for the soul, we were the original therapists and I still <laughs> always emphasize they all, all the therapeutic orientations still draw from those traditions. But... Mm. Uh, they might say, oh, but you see, you can learn all these things yourself. But when you have somebody who's really in trauma, uh, these medicines can really support them. Uh, can you maybe mm-hmm. talk about, I, I don't know if there's any, anything, any of that <laughs> you want to riff on.
1: It's beautiful, yeah. Um, wow, I love your your metaphor of the space suit. I use the metaphor often with ketamine with my clients that... Um. Ketamine or any psychedelic really is like an artist walking into an artist studio and all of the paints and the canvas and the clay and everything that's in that art studio is, is all of your, are all of your experiences, your biology, your, maybe your past life stuff, your legacy burdens from your family. All of that, those materials are there in the studio and the artist, the psychedelic comes in and collaborates with the stuff you have in your studio to create this work of art. That is your journey. Right, and each one is very different based on those materials that you have, what you've been paying attention to, where you are. So, um, yeah, it definitely feels to me like a collaboration that the molecule, each molecule has its own signature, right? Its own its own kind of directive, and then and then whatever it's working with within you. Something that's really interesting, that's a little bit outside of the conversation, but I, <laughs> I feel drawn to pull it there, is in this idea of exploring you know, is this discovery or invention is there are people that know how to have shared experiences within the psychedelic realm. That's very fascinating to me to have a consensual reality plane that you can both meet in, right? So I met a guy that was studying with an ayahuascaro who the medicine man would place almost like Easter egg treasure hunt items in the ayahuasca space and then his students would go in and find them. And if they were able to find them, they would be able to move to the next level. That's really fascinating to me, right? How can we have these shared experiences in the imaginal realm? What is that? What are the implications of that? That's really a fascinating idea, right? So yes, I mean, there's there's such a wide breadth of ways to use psychedelics. And one of the amazing ways to use it is to help people with trauma. Um, to take it back to your question about people who are traumatized. Um, ketamine down-regulates the right amygdala, and that's the smoke detector in the brain. It's a fear center of the brain. And there's something about that that helps us get into that observer mind. And people that take ketamine recreationally at parties and things like that don't have, aren't healed of trauma typically, right? So again, using that collaboration idea, it's really important that you know people who have trauma, and a lot of us have trauma, trauma is ubiquitous in the world, um, to have a therapist to help prepare for the journey, to help you get psychologically ready for what might come up, to be with you during the experience in case you need help, in case you need someone to talk to, in case you just need to have a hand to hold, and then helping you integrate this experience as you come back and making sense of what does that mean. And you know i love um being an internal family systems person i really love the the way that we can work with parts that come up during the ketamine experience you know for people with trauma we have really strong protector parts right they help us just manage the day-to-day our day-to-day life and behind those protector parts are really vulnerable exiles that have been terribly hurt when we use a psychedelic, which I call, you know, many people call non-specific amplifiers. It potentiates therapy. What we're really doing it at higher doses is putting those protector parts to sleep. They're not engaged to be able to defend against those exiles that want to come up out of the basement. So with trauma, those exiles come forward. The beauty with ketamine is that we've got that down-regulated right amygdala. So we typically can look at those exiles and the stories that the exiles have with some detachment and benevolence and kindness and compassion. So then the really interesting part as a trauma practitioner is when people come out of the psychedelic experience, out of the ketamine experience, and their protectors start waking up and coming back online, we really want to work with them So that there's not this rebound effect of shame and punishment for having had access to those exiles. Am I making sense there?
0: 100%. Yeah. And in fact, you know, so from this is a big part of what I've been trying to introduce to the conversation is the fact that um, irrespective of the skill of a particular therapist, uh, we have this incredible untapped cultural resource of the wisdom traditions that empower us to be able to do this uh, kind of work, I think, more skillfully. Uh, I mean, the dominant culture tries to keep philosophy away from us because those traditions are so dangerous. That's part of the meaning of dangerous wisdom. It's mm-hmm. it's threatening to the structures of power. And that's part of what those traditions, those traditions have been doing that work and trying to teach people how to do this kind of thing uh, just on the, you could say, the power of their own psyche. So, for instance, when you say that the uh, uh, the uh, kind of reactivity is calmed and we can associate that with a brain structure. What we know from the research on compassion training is that compassion, we can learn. We actually have the skill to turn toward what is difficult. But if we don't learn that skill, then we can use the word compassion, but we might be really empathetic and we might be creating empathy distress for ourselves. And which means we're just going to be more protective. Without that skill, we can't look at it right. so that's what I was trying to get out to earlier is that if a person's really in, in, a, in a bind and they don't have months to to try to build up a, a compassion uh, skill, then they can the medicine can support that in this profound way that, that begins to bring healing and then even allows them maybe to be to, to, to strengthen the skill of compassion that I still think they should learn. So in other words, I think it's, fun. yeah, It's it would be nice to see more integration. I'd love to have more dialogue like this with therapists mm-hmm. who probably don't even know, because when I was, I was so fascinated with psychology, I almost got a PhD there. And so I took many courses in psychology. And how many times did my professors want to differentiate? This is not philosophy, and let me tell you why. This <laughs> mm-hmm. so was really mm-hmm. keeping it at arm's length. And even the positive psychology folks are really kind of, you know, not responsive to the traditions. But anyway, this, please continue. I, I appreciate what you're saying. And then this this work, which is that we integrate uh, the parts. And this alone, let's say, too, Nietzsche, you would love Nietzsche, because Nietzsche saw us <laughs> more as an ecology and not as monolithic. But even going back to Plato, there was a recognition that, okay, there's at least, say, three qualities of the ecology. Um, not necessarily that it was like three three elements only, but we do get this uh, triadic soul vision, right? You know, that there is the protector in there, there's the passion in there, and there's the intellect. And that's because mm-hmm. I think at the, the kind of resolution that Plato wanted to give, he didn't go into further detail, but Nietzsche really wanted to say, oh, there's all kinds of stuff in there. <laughs> you know, <it's, laughs> and you've got to decide, you know, who, you're, who you want to, uh, and sometimes you don't get to decide if you don't know how to work with your life, that something in there is going to yeah. assert itself. But uh yeah, maybe talk a little bit more about that importance of integration, if you if you don't mind, yeah. or whatever else yeah. you want. Oh, I don't want course. to lead too much.
1: This is no, this is great. And I really appreciate your input on that because it's yeah, there's so much wisdom and it's that, you know, that perennial philosophy that I think Huxley talked about, where you, you find these truths in all these different traditions, right, that are constants. And there are many ways to orient toward it. You know, I look at IFS, and it's so much like archetypal psychology. You know, the archetypes, and you know that what I really love about using IFS is it's so personalized. It's not, it's not dictated. Oh, a snake in your dream means this, and this is what a tree means in your journey. There's a, there's an element of curiosity that I really appreciate, and the way that uh, Richard Schwartz has taken something that's so. Uh, qualitative and turned it into a quantitative teachable method is really admirable. So there's, there, there's such a, an issue with having people that are adequately trained to be really good practitioners, right. And, and ways of training people, not just in, in psychology, but particularly in psychedelic therapy and to all of these things that you and I are talking about, it comes back to this idea that the therapist or whoever's holding space is not separate from what's happening. We are integral to the journey and to the process and how we are with being with people. There's no way to be invisible or opaque around that, especially in holding space with psychedelic medicine. You have to do your own work you are showing up as a presence in the space and there's this clarity and truth that comes with the psychedelic medicine where people that you're sitting for can absolutely see you and and how you are in the space right and so there's this beautiful alchemy that happens that something that i'm always chewing on is how do i figure out a way to train people where it's so qualitative and so philosophical and so open-ended, how do you take that and crunch that down into some quantifiable, teachable thing? And it's really difficult, right? I have people tell me all the time, seeing you online is one thing, but when I'm in your presence, there's a, it's a completely different experience with you. And all of that is not conveyed in words or video or anything like that. It's, it's a felt sense of being with another person. Right. And I have that experience with people, too. If, if you and I were sitting in the same space and breathing together and talking with each other, we would have a completely different experience than being here on this video. Right. And so all of these things are very interesting to me. And I don't know if that really answered your question, but it kind of sparked all these ideas of what you offered in, <laughs> in your in your addition to the conversation.
0: Yeah, it's beautiful. I mean, this is, this is the non-duality of self-regulation and co-regulation. It's the interbeing that Buddha was talking about. It's why in these spiritual traditions, as a student progresses, they are just simply observed. I remember Lucian Strike, the American poet, went to Japan. He was going to interview a Zen master, and he's in the temple. The Zen master is just saying, shh, just wait a What are you doing? I'm watching my student get water.
1: He <laughs> wow. just wants to
0: see see how he's being. Mm -hmm. and uh there's there's an episode called magic mind synchrony where i actually look at some of the science of this you know that they're finding increasingly that people separated you know two different brains are Mm -hmm. engaged in the same activity that a synchrony begins to happen it's really a synchronicity even and that's Mm -hmm. where we get that shared reality and then Mm. there's also this this um this beautiful dimension of asking how you teach it and um you know this too. When when Buddha taught the immeasurables, compassion, he was teaching compassion as a skill, something that seems unquantifiable. And the Dalai Lama's just done such a good job of saying to Western science, "Look, we know this works." We've got very clear empirical data. We're not a bunch of goofballs. This is empirical for us. But you mm-hmm. verify it by your means, and then let's create programs. So Stanford developed a, a compassion training protocol. Uh, Berkeley has one. Emory has one. And it shows that you can actually teach people that the kind of presence that you're talking about. And I've found mm-hmm. that when I talk to people in the psychedelic community, these sorts of trainings can be very transformative for them. Mm-hmm. Similar with... Um, uh, uh, maybe Do you know Machig Labdron? Have you ever heard of I do Ma- know. Okay. She mm-hmm. is an incredible yogini. She lived about a thousand years ago. And a contemporary woman who is a very, very uh, important spiritual elder um, named uh, Lama Sultram Alioni, she wrote a, a present-day expression of Machig's work. And Mark Epstein, a kind of famous uh, psychiatrist, mm-hmm. he said, well, this is the, the book that Carl Jung only dreamed about. He couldn't have written this book. But, <laughs> but what oh. Machig does is, she, it's really worth looking at because it, you'll see a lot of resonance with uh, IFS. She uh, called the internal presences demons. Now, in the Buddhist tradition, when you say, say that, you might get freaked out, but in the Buddhist tradition, uh, there isn't this uh, kind of strict view that there are not non-human entities. They accept that there can be non-human entities, but they also accept that the word demon refers to any obstruction to liberation, which means it's not strictly in me, and it's not strictly outside of me. So your anger mm-hmm. is a demon. That's how it's it's viewed. And then Maché came up with this way of allowing these, these presences to come up to take a form, and then to be nourished, and so the process mm. is—it's called feeding, <laughs> feeding your demons. Instead of yes. fighting them, you say, "Come, friend, let me help you out." And wow. you, they're fed, and then they are transformed into an ally. They beautiful. are beautiful. That's asked,
1: exactly the IFS process. <laughs> exactly, That's amazing. and Machig oh, wow. did it a
0: thousand years ago. It really is wow. beautiful. It really is beautiful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love I love all this. This is really good stuff. Yeah, me yeah. too.
1: You know, I, I have so many thoughts. Uh, one is uh, Bill Richards, who was one of the original uh, researchers in psilocybin uh, back in the '60s, uh, told me once about when people have bad trips that it's a you know monster chasing them, and he said, "See if you can not only face the monster." But become the monster. Look out of the eyes of the monster, and ask it what it's trying to tell you.
0: That's what you do know, in the feed, demon feeding. Feed, actually, feeding you actually you become right? you actually in one phase of it because it's done like as if the demon sits in front of you. You bring them out and ask them to take a form,
1: mm-hmm. yeah. and
0: then you get in their body and feel what it feels like to be them. And what do you look like from their perspective?
1: Yep. Then you return
0: and feed them. It's a beautiful process. And again, beautiful. Yeah. And that's
1: the unburdening process in IFS. That's what that is. Is like our firefighters or our extreme protectors really want something good for the system. If we can get curious, right, and uncover their extreme behaviors into what is their true intention. Yes. Once you appreciate them, once you feed them with your appreciation, there's this softening, right? even you know at the at the hierarchy of the firefighters in the ifs system are are suicidal parts yeah. right extreme suicidality yeah and that really you know interestingly wants the best for the system if we can get curious about it if we can engage with that in a safe way but you as a therapist you really need to know what you're doing to be able to work with those parts right that are extreme parts you don't want to constellate them or alienate them but there is this whole process of exactly What you just said Nikos to really pay attention to look through the eyes of and and get curious around what these parts are saying in IFS uh Dick Schwartz in his book no bad parts talked about these these entities called unattached burdens which are very fascinating these are kind of like dark maybe not evil but dark malevolent forces in the cosmos they're looking for weaknesses in people and can attach to people yes. that are not part of the internal system but are external beings, which is super fascinating to me. And I've always, you know, practicing magic all my life, Have al- I've always been very aware that it's not all unicorns and rainbows in <laughs> in the spirit realms, right? There are dark energies out there and you know so this is a very interesting thing to me to work with clients that have these unattached burdens and figuring out what opened up in their space to allow for these to come in right
0: yeah that's part of that uh, shamanic dimension to the buddhist traditions is that they have remained open to that idea of okay it it seems like it's out there and then nevertheless because of what you were pointing out this kind of non-duality in some people it, those demons will come and harass them and others they mm-hmm. can be converted so you can heal a land a place you know mm-hmm. so some of the, the sages it's kind of throughout the buddhist traditions you see this idea these stories of the sage who goes to the place and and you know converts the demons and mm-hmm. you know finds those presences and un- opens up the sacredness there's once a story about this uh, guy who was having nightmare so terrible this incredible monster would chase him and it was so terrifying that he he's stopped being able to sleep it was just too much you know and and mm-hmm. so he's completely on edge he's on the verge of a complete breakdown and he goes to the spiritual teacher who says well, uh, I'm sorry. You, you've you've been to the doctors. You've tried herbs and all these other things. You've tried yoga. All right. Well, I, I, I'm sorry, but you don't have any choice. In the dream, I want you to. I'll, I'll stay here and watch over you, and you go to sleep, and you're just going to have to ask the demon what it wants.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And so the guy is terrified, and the teacher says, No, I'll be right here. I'll watch over you. So he goes to sleep, and immediately he you know, goes into REM sleep, and he has the dream, and the demon's chasing him. And he's at first terrified, and he runs, and he thinks, Okay, the teacher's there. He stops, and he turns around, and he says, Please, will you just tell me what you want? And the demon looks at him and says, Well, I don't know. It's your dream. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: That's
0: fantastic. <laughs> well, you broached the subject of magic, though. Can you say a little bit more about that? I, I, we did a series on magic. I'm I'm looking actually forward to doing more interviews about magic. But maybe we can touch a little Wonderful. bit on that, what your understanding and experience, or you can relate it sure. to this or not. I, whatever, wherever you want to go, yeah. Sunny. <laughs>
1: I'm really private about, I've just barely come out about talking about doing magic. Um, My, my maternal line is Italian. Uh And upon researching last, I'm, I'm fairly certain that I come from a long line of witches from Italy. Um, I was very close to my maternal grandmother and she, uh, you know, like we see in so many cultures, um, you know Catholicism and all the saints. You know the 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 old gods and goddesses were overlaid onto the saints, right? So my grandmother was continually praying to all the all the different saints, like they were gods and goddesses, old Diana and you know <laughs> the whole pantheon of them. Um, who's going to help me find my keys? And who do I have to you know? What statue do I need to bury upside down out in the garden to sell something? Or, <laughs> you know. So I was really raised with this very mystical, magical way of seeing the world and very connected to nature. She was very connected to nature. And we spent a lot of time outside and being curious about animals and animal spirits and totems and the symbolism of what they meant. And just a beautiful, she was such a beautiful guide into that world. Um, So I started practicing early in my teen years and becoming really curious about paganism and witchcraft and studying it. And, you know, and, and that was in the eighties and it was definitely not something that people were talking about openly, like we are now. Um, and so that was a long, I just have had a long tradition of practicing in the mornings and doing my own little ways of connecting to my guides and spirits and ritual and practicing magic, um, something that's really fundamental in my way of seeing is I think it's so funny, this whole, like when the law of attraction was a big thing and, and they were like the secret and it's invented, you know, by this one. And I mean, these mystical traditions have been doing that same thing for centuries, you know, eons. Um, So this idea of casting a spell evoking what you wish is like a magic wand it's it's directing energy out towards something that you want and the way i understand it is it's the masculine projection of desire and the second half of casting magic spells is understanding the feminine aspect which is receiving magnetizing and calling in and so that creates a circuit a completed circuit, the conunctio of those two things, right? The merging of those create that kind of divine child that we see in all these different traditions, right? That's born from this union of the masculine and the feminine. And so that's a practice that's just been my own practice that has been informed by different philosophical and magic traditions that I've been working with for a long time. And um, it's really helped me, orient toward being in helping fields and really aligning with uh, my signature almost like the psychedelic signature it's like i have a signature you have a signature we all have a signature in each lifetime of what our manifestation is and and for me it's really being in this helping profession and how do i align with magic in order to help as many people as i possibly can and then also nature you know animals plants and fungi and minerals and the earth itself herself so that's really my orientation and what i love about magic practice is it's so open-ended that you don't have to be in this go through some middleman to tell you how to do it or structure it's it's really about self-inquiry and self-discovery and and what works for each of us i have so many people come to me and say teach me magic teach me and it's like no, it's you're teaching yourself magic. You just have to create the discipline structures, read and research all kinds of things, but it's still your own. It's still your own endeavor. And that's what I think is so beautiful is it's a direct connection to the divine.
0: Mm. Yeah. The path is made in the walking.
1: Mm. That's
0: beautiful. Beautiful. So- well, that's Machado and uh, also Zhuangzi, long before. I wonder if Machado read Zhuangzi when he wrote that poem. Mm. Uh, so, uh, w- w- do you see uh, the energy or activity of magic in a ketamine session? Do you feel that, that ketamine counts as a kind of magic potion, let us say? I mean, if we could speak mm. symbolically.
1: Well, I think Everything that we do everything we say is a prayer and a magic spell. Uh I don't think anything is outside of that. Mm -hmm. Just focusing our awareness is a magic spell. Mm -hmm. So nothing is outside of that, first of all. Mm -hmm. So I don't see the ketamine or other psychedelic experiences separate from that, but I see it as an amplification of Mm that. Um, Being in the psychedelic world can propel us into other Um, no, not propel, that's not the right word, Um, open up the aperture of our sensing (laughs) to be able to access other worlds and other planes, including the spiritual realms, right? And that's something that we don't talk enough about in this medicalized model of psychedelics at all. You know, we talk about healing the mind, we talk about healing the body, perhaps. We don't talk enough about opening our patients up to spiritual experience and what does that mean it's incredibly important to be aware of that because all kinds of stuff can happen when you're in this expanded space right and we're not very adept in our culture most of us at knowing how to navigate places like that So some kind of rocket ship sends you into this place and then you have no skill to protect yourself or to navigate or orient within that space or the work that you need to do there. And I'm really passionate about weaving that into the conversation because the indigenous cultures that have been using psychedelics forever, including my own culture, the Italian culture, your culture, the Greek culture, what was it called? A cake on? Was that the <laughs> yeah, right? right? I mean, we've been using psychedelics in all cultures for a long time. And we were connected to that understanding of the spirit world. Right. And, and the importance of navigating that with care. And, um, you know, when you were telling the story about the monster and the teacher, you know, that the, the dreamer was empowered by having the teacher there. Right. And that's what we can offer is some help in, navigating that space because we ourselves are familiar with that space right we've been there the hero the heroine has walked the path of the journey before right so that I think is incredibly important
0: oh yeah amen sister I mean that's a part of what uh, what I'm trying to get at that the the wisdom traditions these people are psychonauts and they have explored this territory in exquisite detail and with exceptional skill, because a, a lot of them, you know, they're, they're able to tap experiences that any other ordinary randomly chosen person is not going to likely have without a medicine to support it. And so they really know that territory. They spend hours and hours and hours. Somebody meditates in a cave for 20 years, you, they're not, it's not an entertainment. There is something going right. on. And they are unleashing capacities in the soul that if we don't know how to look for it, you, you, how would you? You know, I mean, sure, by accident you might stumble onto it, but um, uh, I always say jo- Joni Mitchell was right that you don't know what you've got till it's gone. But if you never had it, <laughs> if there's been that baseline syndrome, the cultural amnesia. And you forgot, Mm. no, the forest is supposed to be right here up to your door. It's not supposed to be 20 miles away. (laughs) And, you know, we don't know how then. And so there's so much that we can learn from those traditions as we still make our own path. It's kind of like, again, this non-duality. Everybody's path is going to be completely their own, or else there would have been a flowchart that some sage invented and just said, here it is, it's it's 10 steps, (laughs) you do this, and it's guaranteed. But it's more like, no, if you do these things, your path will open up and you will have mm-hmm. the support to walk it. This mm-hmm. is just the thing that helps you to walk the path. And also responsibly, because I also th- I think it's so interesting how a lot of the pop culture references to magic that we see, we see the inexperienced magician perform magic, they get what they want, and then you know the little old lady down the street dies. And, and they don't even know that wasn't their intention. It was, it's just like you wave the one and suddenly all heck breaks loose like the Sorcerer's Apprentice because you're dealing <laughs> with things that you, you know, you, you got to get a driver's permit. you got to learn the rules of the road before we yes. don't just hand you the keys to the Learjet. You know, <laughs> you got to right. know how to fly it. Oh, I love that. And uh, yeah, that's part of what these traditions do because they even even the fact that they ground it in ethics and it's not even, uh, we're, we're seeing even... You know, controversy emerging over uh, things that are ethical transgressions in in the psychedelic realm. And Mm -hmm. it's not to say anybody is uh, immune to those, but just even grounding in ethics and compassion and a vision of what Mm -hmm. might be possible for us that your culture doesn't want you to know. (laughs) know?
1: Yes, yes, thank you. Yeah, exactly. May I share a story with you? Oh, goodness, I'm... (laughs) About hubris.
0: I love it.
1: (laughs) I'll share an Icarus, Icarus, what was it? Uh, Icarus, right? Yeah, Icarus, yeah. Icarus flying into the sun. Yeah. So I was was, uh, seeing him. I still see her sometimes. My therapist is an older woman who uh, studied with the Quechua in Peru and does beautiful drumming. She's an amazing person because not only does she do drumming and, and shamanic journeys like that, but she also does neurofeedback so she's kind of this highly technical person that hooks brain, you know, to electrodes to my head, and I do watch this video game where I control this biofeedback thing, and then next time she's doing drumming and you know taking off the entities that are attached to my field, right? <laughs> so when I first started seeing her, I was bragging about the ability to just go into these really deep psychedelic spaces. And I'm such a psychonaut, and I'm you know telling her all these stories about about my courage, you know, in these psychedelic realms. And I was wearing this, um, necklace that has a cat on it and, and, and cat energy in many different forms has been a totem for me for a long time. One of my totem animals. Um, and she, she just took it all in and then she just pointed to my necklace and she said, you better learn how to channel that totem of yours. She said, you're pretty good at getting in deep into these psychedelic spaces, but you don't know what the hell you're doing. You have no idea. (laughs) <laughs> and she said you're going into these spaces you're like a bowl in a china closet and all of these dark energies can see you and you're not wise enough yet to be able to see them and you need to get some protection so you need to channel that cat energy so you can see in the dark mm. and that was an amazing teaching for mm.
0: me. goodness was
1: goodness. yeah yeah take a step back do more integration be very cautious, create a discipline within the space. Ask your guides and protectors to come in and hold space for you before you embark on the journey. All of these, this good hygiene, this good spiritual hygiene that we do isn't just going through the motions. It's, it's really essential. Right. And I still feel, still feel like a beginner. Now, since you taught me that doing all these journeys, sitting, in you know, had hosted over a thousand people in their journeys. Now, I'm constantly reminded, you are just a beginner, girl. There are infinite realities to explore and be humble in that space. Yeah.
0: Thank you so much for sharing that. That is just, it, it. this is part of how the dominant culture keeps us locked in the pattern of insanity. It makes us think, and this is growing. Uh, I know a guy who taught at... Um, at a technical school for electricians. And he said, "He said, I retired early because I could not convince these people that you can't watch YouTube videos and be an electrician. You you, can, mm-hmm. you have to learn how to do the work. You can't say, well, I'll just, mm-hmm. I, I already, and he said, the thing is, they, they don't make the distinction that because they can look it up on the internet that they then know it. It's in a mm-hmm. video somewhere. That doesn't mean you know it. Uh, mm-hmm. I've seen high-level Tibetan teachers just say, we, I, I don't feel I can teach real philosophy because uh, nobody wants to do the work and they act like they already know it. I heard one teacher kind of say to somebody, was saying, oh, I understand uh, shunyata. Oh, I, you know, I totally get that. And he said, no, <laughs> no you don't.
1: <laughs> I'm sorry to
0: tell you this, but you think you do. And you yeah. know, just because you can go get a PhD or whatever does not mean that you understand mm-hmm. these realms. And it's just part of how I think we stay locked because yes. we're so atomized and we're so willing to, it's like we want to rebel so much against the stupid hierarchies that we forget that the real meaning of hierarchy is not dominance, but it is a sacred ordering. There's a way mm-hmm. that things have to be done, and you have to recognize what where your limits are. And it's so much, wow. I think that's why Socrates is such a good figure for our culture, because that's what he was saying. I don't know. And mm-hmm. so therefore, I am not willing to do something that might harm people. And mm-hmm. this is what everybody's running around saying, "I know Elon Musk is sure he knows, and so mm-hmm. now we have to go to Mars, where there are no mm-hmm. birds, no trees, <laughs> no grass, but they know what they're doing, apparently, and we're, <laughs> then then that drives us nuts, and then we don't want we don't want to ask well, maybe maybe we don't know
1: yeah it, it's i I look at this metaculture as like you know teenagers that think they know everything. <laughs> and they're clueless and they have all this bravado and think they're never going to die it feels like we are possessed in this macro way of that teenage boy part that that thinks that he's hot shit and he's doing donuts somewhere in a parking lot you know it's just this incredible naivete about what we're doing that has real impact you know and and i'm watching this whole psychedelic the capitalization of psychedelics you know the turning it into this consumerist model as that same, it's that same paradigm of, of bull in a China closet going in and thinking, we know what we're doing and we have no clue. We have no clue. You know, what, how does this impact us in the spiritual realm? Yes. And also how does this impact indigenous communities? You know, how does this impact our culture? All of these things that we're doing, you know, where you have a non-specific amplifier, and what, what happens when you have, you know, it's like these, the, these indigenous cultures that, you know, had bows and arrows and then suddenly they have machine guns and there's no, there's no learning steps that happen in between. And so there are these crazy wars because the damage that can be done with that is so huge, right? It's just like you have to walk those steps. You still have to walk the path. Psychedelics can show you the vista, you still have to go back and walk the path. Wasn't it, was it Alan Watts that said it?
0: Oh, that Someone one you said got it. me. So, yeah, you oh, can see wow, that. Oh, it...
1: wow, I can't believe it. I stumped you. I can't <laughs> believe it. <laughs> I stumped myself. I think it was Alan Watts who said it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But
1: yeah, I mean, it, it, it's really a big deal. It's a big yeah. conversation that we need to have. Right.
0: Yeah, and when you say it, like even seeing the vista, it's a it's a big thing. I, I this is one thing I where Rick Strassman and I really agree because what he was trying to say is, I mean, we disagree on certain things with all due respect to him, um, but one one of the places that we really agree is he was saying that you know I put I, these people when I ran these experiments, they were having incredibly powerful experiences. None of them would qualify as a prophetic experience within the tradition he was looking at, which he returned to his own roots, the Hebrew tradition, um, because he, because of his more narrow experience with Buddhism, he didn't think the Buddhist philosophy had space for this. Because maybe he never read the Avatamsaka Sutra. I mean, you know, it's it's there's so much psychedelic um activity from early poly con- canon, even but if you were trained in american zen you, you might not know any of that because you know there's this stripping away of the culture which which actually we don't realize it's domesticating it's the same thing with like you know if we're, if we're using psychedelics willy-nilly we think oh you know i'm rebelling against the rules or whatever but that's actually a domestication of its potential ultimately but anyway it's the same thing that he was saying in order for that material to be properly metabolized and useful to both you and your culture, you need training. Otherwise, it's just overwhelming. And the way I usually think of this is that we practice in this culture the habit of not metabolizing experience. When the experience has a negative valence and it's unmetabolized, the word we use is trauma. When it has a positive valence and it's unmetabolized, we call it bliss. But we don't still think of it as unmetabolized when it's bliss. We think that, that, you know, oh, I've been revealed the secrets of the cosmos. And these sages would say, no, really, can you guide the culture? I mean, if you look at what Buddha does mm. with his revelation, he lays out a s- human psychology that is still perfectly workable. It's exceptional. It, it knows things that our psychology is still verifying by means of our fancy equipment. That's somebody who really brought something back from whatever that yeah. experience was. Anyway, it's, these are all really fascinating. I
1: love things. that the word metabolizing. It's, it, that's really crucial right to make sense of it um the way that i organize my retreats is often through the four directions of alchemy where we start with seleucio water element we move to fire calcinatio then up to sublimatio air and then to coagulatio earth so you're starting in the, the everything then you go to face the dragon in the fire right and and retrieve the pearl of your individuation like um Joseph Campbell talked about moving to sublimatio, the spiritual awakening, the expansion, the seeing everything, the the euphoria that we get from a psychedelic experience. But you have to come back to coagulatio ground, which is the metabolizing part. You're digesting what happened. You're still in this meat body. You gotta come back and you've got to be able to teach the next generation. It's that generativity. What does it mean? Like you don't really understand something until you're able to teach it, right? And so what does it mean to metabolize all that content and make sense of it? And and we are so hardwired to be story-making creatures that we've been telling stories since the beginning. That's how we held information, right? That's that's a huge part of why we're the amazing complex collaborative creatures we are. And so turning it into a story is really essential as part of that metabolism, bringing it down out of the ineffable and into Something that makes sense is important. It's essential, mm. right? And that's why integration is so crucial to the psychedelic experience. And not only integration makes sense in the journey, but what are you going to do now in your daily practices that's going to carry forward what you saw and experienced? What do you do each day to meditate, to take care of your body, to, take, to connect to your heart and your compassion? What are your daily practices to carry this forward? Because if you don't, then it's just this weird experience that doesn't make any sense. And then you're just drawn to go back and have another experience and another experience and another experience. Because you're not properly integrating what happened and making it into meaning.
0: Yeah. And this is a a major problem in the the culture, of course, the way it's organized. It's why this... uh, In order to get out of the self-help catastrophe, we have to not just be helping ourselves. The work really has to Mm be healing our ecologies, broadly speaking, the ones that I might localize here because I'm an ecology, so to speak, but then I depend on this watershed and these mountains and these trees, and what am I doing to help them? Or are they just there? Mm -hmm. I mean, you you saw how profound it is to be here. We still got a few old ones. Most of them were cut down. The logging (laughs) was incredible (laughs) and tragic. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but that just goes to show you that this is a trauma-making culture. It knows how to yeah. create scarcity. It knows how to create these wounds and destabilize uh, healthier states of consciousness. And how do we help a larger transformation take place? And that's going to require us to more of us, at least, to to get that training that a prophet needs because that's what the mm-hmm. prophets did in the Hebrew Bible. They were saying, "Hey, you guys are going in the wrong direction because, mm-hmm. uh, and if you keep doing it, you know, we're we're going to we're going to have problems." Yeah.
1: Yeah. Can we explore this a little bit? I really like this topic.
0: Sure, yes.
1: Yeah. yeah. Um, I'll start by saying it's really interesting when I listen to people's trip reports, knowing how much work they've done is often indicated by whether their material and their journey is autobiographical or if it's in this larger, larger collective, Right an amazing book that speaks to this beautifully is Chris Basha's book, LSD and the universal mind. Have you read that one? No, it's incredible.
0: Okay. So
1: he does a series of huge LSD experiences over, I think it was a few years where, you know, like once a month or something and they have this trajectory an overarching trajectory where the beginning of them, they're all autobiographical stuff. And then the middle phase is this incredible grief that he has around the earth and the suffering and the deforestation and climate, you know, catastrophes and all of that. And then he goes to this to this resolution part of what's going to happen in the future and how we're going to collectively resolve and kind of this, but not just earthbound, but in this grand scheme. Right, fascinating book. And my journeys have followed a similar trajectory where there was a long period, kind of just exiting that period of like a lot of grief around what we're doing to our environment. And I think what happens, we are holograms, we're fractals of a larger system. There's as above, so below, micro and macro, right? So we need to digest our personal autobiographical stories. That's like step one is being able to clear out all that stuff so that you can see beyond yourself. If you look at it, it's even reflected in developmental psychology. We go through a phase early on when we realize that we're not part of our mother and that we're a separate being. And we go through this narcissistic phase where everything's about us and, and we're totally self-focused and it's important. That's, that's a phase we have to go through. So I see that in the process of spiritual awakening, we have to go through this process of working through our own stuff, right? Digesting that.
0: Metabolizing. And my,
1: metabolizing. <laughs> and then for me, what, what happened for me was I went through a period of time where I was doing past life stuff. So it went from my local autobiographical content and then it went to the content of my past life and my soul's journey. And that was kind of phase two of the work, Right. And then I think there's this, this next phase, which is seeing the greater system on the meta view, and how we're participating all together in creating this reality, right? And what does it mean? And I think there's incredible potential for psychedelics to help us reconnect with that. Not very many things right now are connecting us to that. You know, when you look at things like virtual reality, that's just isolating us more away from nature and, and disconnecting us more. And so what kinds of things are happening in our cultural system right now that are connecting us to nature and psychedelics are one thing that helps us see a greater view because it's a, it's potentiating our own growth, right? That feels really, really important to me. And I love that you brought it up because we really need to step out of this narcissism And just staring at ourselves and our own issues and really take a look outside of ourselves at what's happening, not only to humanity, but to to the whole system that we're in.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, that's what the self-help catastrophe does. We're hurting, we want to stop hurting, and the self-help industrial complex pulls us into helping ourselves by doing more taking. And it is really interesting. I sometimes think that we've, we've misunderstood the symbolic dimension of our own lives. The internet, we keep acting like and saying, it's like a refrain that, oh, the world is more connected than ever. No, we built the internet, the soul had us built the internet as a message in a bottle. And the message is, hey, everything's connected, people. Wake up. Mm. It's not you connected it by building an internet. It is connected. And if you don't Mm -hmm. know how to navigate, wisdom is skillful interwovenness. It is the skill in navigating that relationality. And it is really, uh, I love what you're saying. And it's also interesting how this too mirrors the spiritual traditions because a a Buddha, it can't be Buddha if he hasn't experienced all his past lives and fully metabolized their meaning. That's what Mm -hmm. happens under that tree. He sits there and part of that journey is really remembering it all and metabolizing it so that it becomes the liberation and mm-hmm. that the earth bears witness to him. What a powerful moment. Mm-hmm. You know, that he gets assaulted with violence first, that's the first temptation, are you afraid? So fear, then craving, and then, well, what gives you the right to sit here under this tree like this, right? This final mm-hmm. challenge that can be interpreted variously. But he, he asks mm-hmm. Gaia, he touches her, and she says, no, he's, he's done the work, I, can, mm-hmm. I vouch for it not his ego, not anybody else, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's a beautiful moment. And I I love what you're saying. Yeah, How do we begin to really think more broadly? Mm, mm,
1: mm. Yeah, I mean, it's... I just read this amazing book um, by Douglas Rushkoff. I love his work um, called Survival of the Richest. Have you have you seen? It? It's amazing. <laughs> okay, but he talks about technology just the way you did—that it's it is this web of interconnectedness. But there's also this solipsism yes. that happens with this highly mediated experience, where people just kind of go into these echo chambers and just get reflected. And it's this narcissistic solipsism that's just never ending, right? Yeah. And there has to be something that that shakes us out of that because like, there's real danger in that.
0: Oh, There's yeah. real danger
1: in that, you know. I think we're we're entering this post-humanist phase, where you know Yuval Harari and Homo Deus talked about the danger of not having a collective mythology to unify us anymore. It's yeah. it's dangerous. Yep. And and you know I think that you can look at people like Elon Musk or you know flying to Mars or this like tech technical like technology is going to rescue us becomes this new god that everybody's hoping for. And, but it's still the same thing that that someone else is going to come rescue us from the craziness that we've made here, yeah. and that's a huge problem, right? We need to take a look at what we've done, take accountability for what we've done, and make amends. We need to make amends with the earth, mm-hmm. right We need to take accountability, we need to change this whole paradigm that we're you know Mars isn't going to rescue us
0: <laughs> yeah. And that's, again, why we need the compassion. It's hard to turn toward something painful. It's like mm-hmm. Semmelweis. When Semmelweis uh, said um, uh, he was looking at uh, the, the high level of uh, infant mortality and the loss of the mother as well in, in birth at his hospital, And he was looking and he's saying, hey, we're supposed to be all scientific, but the midwives are beating our pants off. They're not losing mothers and babies like this. It's Mm got to be something we're doing. So then he Mm -hmm. said, well, I don't know. After observing this carefully, I I can't help but wonder, we're a teaching hospital. People go in the back there and they do uh, dissection. They do autopsy to study anatomy and teach anatomy and then they go deliver a baby. Maybe that's not a good idea. You know, his old Mm -hmm. ideas of purity, and maybe we should wash up first. And so he demonstrated. He did all the math and showed. I have the people wash up. Mothers and babies survive. The medical community ridiculed him. He died died in an asylum, and I sometimes think it's because he knew the truth and no one would listen. But part of the horror, I think, for them, there were two things. One, you're pointing to myth. There wasn't an overarching story to explain it because they didn't have the germ theory yet. Pasteur was yet to come. So when Lister did the same thing in Scotland, he had a story.
1: He could Mm. explain
0: why. So he didn't have the story to explain why it would be. And then the horror of a physician being told, you're dirty and you killed a mother and baby. That's Mm -hmm. hard to listen to, and it's much easier to say, no, I don't want to hear it. It's much easier to say, Mm -hmm. no, there's nothing wrong with the planet. It's sun cycles, because Mm -hmm. then I have to look at what I'm doing Mm -hmm. and even look at my own suffering, that my body is saying, hey, I've got plastic in here. That's not supposed to Mm -hmm. be here. The soul feels under assault. And as many therapists have pointed out, look, if we went back 50 years, the kind of talk that we take to be uh, empirical fact would be schizophrenic. They're coming to get yeah. me. It's in my blood. It's <laughs> the lamp right. is killing me. You know the, the lamp is killing <laughs> you. Yeah, the, the bowl <laughs> is killing me. What? <laughs> you know, the, but it is. It's you know, and it's uh, this connection idea is also as beautiful. The the kind of pin, one of the pinnacle traditions of uh, the Indo-Tibetan philosophical uh, uh, journey is zokchen, which is a Tibetan translation of the Sanskrit word mahasandi, which uh, Robert Thurman points out is probably best translated as the great connection. Mm-hmm. So this is the pinnacle of Buddhist philosophy is the great connection, this kind of great liberation into the interwovenness to be so intimate with everything that you're still yourself, but you're not yourself. <laughs> At the same time, mm-hmm. this kind of non-dual, not two things, but not one thing either, not some... And uh, yeah, I think you're, you're just touching on all the important things. How can we let the medicines empower that Rather than get pulled in, because everybody in the tech world uh, microdoses and they go to ayahuasca <laughs> right. ceremonies, and yeah. and we are on the verge, really, of psychedelics being co-opted the way any mindfulness. You know, that was oh, that could have mm. been a big revolution. Not now. I mean, now the hedge fund manager can just steal your pension all the better because they meditate and they, and they microdose. <laughs> 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 you
1: know. Well, and it is that you know our cult, this whole capitalism and consumerism, is really like a cancer that you know permeates everything and kind of subsumes everything into itself and it's like you said at the top of the hour it's really dangerous right it's a dangerous thing um i love bob thurman you know i teach at menla and uh he's such a delightful teacher and he he has this playful way of talking about really difficult things like climate crisis in a way that's very beautiful and keeps people engaged so that it's not overwhelming. Yeah. I'm always so impressed with his ability to do that. Yeah. Um, his nickname for me is sunny chocolate because when he first, <laughs> when he first heard my name, he thought I said chocolate and he's like, your name's chocolate. What's So we just have this funny ongoing thing where every time he sees me, he's like, there's sunny
0: chocolate. (laughs) (laughs) I mean,
1: he's really like woven playfulness and delight in his teaching. And it helps us stay engaged because, you know, admittedly when I, you know, I'm, I'm really sensitive to, you know, stories about climate change and the polar bears and these things that I can feel parts of me are so overwhelmed with guilt and shame That I, I I just cannot take it in sometimes. It's, it's a lot. It's a lot for us. And we really that I think that's really the risk is that we hear this bad news about the climate and it's so overwhelming for us. Like, what can I do? Yeah. And I've had so many clients that have journeyed that, you know, they're, they're having this beautiful experience and then they look out the window and they see a tree. And there's this intimate reconnection with that tree. That tree is my friend. That tree is my sister, my brother. And that one-on-one individual experience reconnects them with compassion for nature. That brings them in relationship with the environment around them. And that's what we need. Because overwhelming news stories just turn everybody off to It because it's too big, but but I that tree that tree is my brother. I'm not going to let anyone hurt that tree, you know. And so I think that's where we need to take it is is in our own circle of influence. How can I make a difference in my circle of influence? How can each one of us do that and feel good about what we're doing so that we do something? Yeah, we do something instead of throw up our hands and say there's nothing I can do. It's too big. Yeah. Does that make sense? Does that resonate? Because oh. I oh, yeah. this is where I've come to it. I don't, I don't know any other way. I haven't come up with another way.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, again, one of the things that's so important about compassion in the, when they did the early research, uh, some, some of it, um, Tanya Zinger was uh, she's uh, at the Max Planck Institute in Leipzig, and she was doing. She was an expert on empathy, and she got Matthew Ricard, who uh, is was born in France. His father's a philosopher. His mother's a exceptional painter, beautiful, beautiful artist. And he got his PhD at the Pasteur Institute, just mentioned Pasteur. So, you know, this is a guy trained in organic chemistry, uh, science mind, and then he decided to become a monk. And he became an exceptionally skilled psychonaut. And so he's used in research both because his what he can do with his mind is extraordinary. And so they're very informative. And he just knows how to talk, how, how to relate to the experiment process. So she put him in the brain scanner to study empathy. And in, in, in some of this empathy research, they expose you to difficult things to see what happens, you know, starving children, war, and so on. And uh, she, it was a two-hour experiment. She pulled him out after thirty minutes. It's in four thirty-minute blocks. She said, "What are you doing in there? It doesn't look at all right." And he said, "Well, I'm practicing compassion. This is really difficult material." And she said, "I don't know what you're doing, but can you just empathize?" And he said, "Yeah, I, I mean, you know, he's a European. He knows what she meant, so he's sure." Puts him in there for the rest of the experiment, and uh, everything was normal again, back to normal. And she pulls him out, and she says, okay, you've been in there now for two hours total. Uh, I'm curious about this empathy and compassion thing. Could you mind going back in and showing me the compassion thing again? And he said, oh, please, because I feel awful. I don't know how anybody could exist like this, but this is all Mm. we know. So he's saying, like, if you have to look at something difficult, of course you're going to get self-protective and not want to look. Mm -hmm. So he goes back in, looking at the same difficult material, he comes out feeling good. Now, one of the things they found out when they were doing these brain scans and continuing to research is a difference between empathy and compassion is that when we experience compassion in the face of very difficult suffering, a part of the brain that would be ordinarily correlated with joy is lighting up. And the person is not getting happy from seeing suffering it is that they are in touch with the basic space of joy that is indigenous to the soul and Mm. that basic space allows them to turn toward the difficult the other thing that happens is parts of the brain that would light up if you are going to get up and do something the activation of the body is lit up even though you're still Mm -hmm. because you are wanting to help it is just this natural response of okay let me let me see what I can do Mm-hmm. That's a very powerful teaching but so is this beautiful thing you're talking about is just connecting I mm-hmm. think you know there's some debate about the etymology of druid but one version is that druid is an oak knower the person who can <laughs> talk to the oak tree knows the oak tree <laughs> knows that teacher that is mm-hmm. a totem for our culture mm-hmm. and similarly you know when uh, uh, I love I often this is one of the little pieces in my magician's bag or medicine pouches is is vine deloria talking about black elk of course in black elk speaks he talks Mm -hmm. about hearing coyote and vine deloria said he said how many of us really could hear coyote how many of us could speak to coyote the way black elk did to get guidance that saved his people from starving Mm -hmm. how do we get that and and you're Mm -hmm. saying well the medicines can help And of course that's part been part of their history isn't it
1: yeah definitely part of their history i love uh, louis Pasteur. my favorite quote of all time is his quote um opportunity favors the prepared mind yes which is very relevant to this conversation because there's incredible i mean there's a lot of suffering there's a lot of hardship right now but there's an incredible opportunity and if we can prepare our minds in this being in this space at this time with these medicines and these potentials, and the internet that connects us to all kinds of wisdom traditions that we can learn about, yeah. there's so much at our fingertips. Can we really take this opportunity to make change? Yeah. You know, to change, to right the ship. Yeah, you know, and it, and it, it's going to require a revolution. Yeah, it's going to require a revolution. Yeah, something totally new,
0: <laughs> right? You know? Or a new relationship with things that we thought were familiar.
1: <laughs> yeah. Right, I mean, a new relationship with the old, yeah,
0: yeah, in a way, and it's it is interesting because you know I remember uh, being at a conference and Stan Grof was there, and then we're talking outside in the hall afterwards, and and he, and he, you know, this is a guy who has deep respect had deep respect for the wisdom traditions, had spiritual experiences that were non psychedelic because of those traditions, and he said, look, you know, I'm a big fan, but I I, I really think. Without these medicines, I don't know how we get enough people into that kind of revolutionary mindset that they really have a a potential. Of course, they can be co opted, but they for a lot of people they can, and that's been. I think it seems like your experience. You've, you've seen a lot of mm-hmm.
1: that. Well, and I don't think it's any accident that it's happening right now. You know, there's a, there there's a counterbalance to the the struggle and the difficulty. There, you know, there, there always is. There always is a, a polyvalence and an opposing force, and I think psychedelics came at just the right time for us to awaken. I think there are other factors that are happening too. You know, other elements that are waking us up. But yeah, I think I think it's pretty it's pretty interesting where we're at right now. <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> like the collective
0: the collective soul, as Jung recognize that you know healing is endogenous even if the therapist might help you the healing is still ultimately endogenous that means that it's coming from within yeah. and that the soul when things happen it is the soul trying to balance right so then the c- culture's mm-hmm. soul by producing all this psychedelic awareness in the culture is is offering us an opportunity to balance ourselves if we work with it skillfully otherwise as mm-hmm. as any therapist knows you're just going to stay locked in the complex
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely, yep. The plants are here to teach us. The molecules are here to teach us. And when we choose to turn toward them, they can be incredible teachers for us.
0: Uh, and there's part of the, the difference too, right, between the, uh, some people are sensitive about ketamine because they would say, well, you know, ayahuasca is a plant or two plants uh, and, and, and a whole complex of uh, uh, practices. But this is a synthetic molecule right here mm-hmm. from America we invented it, it's right. ours. <laughs> and uh, so there might be some hesitation, but you're, you're as someone, you, in just what you said and then connecting it to your history with magic, you you could have an animist view that, the, well, this too has ascensions. It's alive. It's mm-hmm. an, a living part of the cosmos. It's a patterning in the cosmos.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think it's it's more, you know, we're such a noun-based culture, right? Mm-hmm. So we look at things, Instead of processes. That's right. And if we think of it as processes, it takes you to similar places that plant medicines take you. Right. right. And that process wants to manifest itself. That's right. And be experienced. Right. And so that, I think, is the more important thing to look at is the, not the vehicle, but the where you go, where you, where you, where you travel to. Yeah. You know, but it, it is, I mean, each medicine has its own signature and you know ayahuasca for example has a very specific signature about you know many people experience it as a feminine um you know entity that comes it's very nature-based that has like a very specific set of things that it wants you to become aware of right um ketamine feels very i I always say it's open source code it's very open-ended and it's a beautiful medicine to use with other psychedelic medicines like in in a practice where it can kind of pre-digest material before you do plant medicine journeys as a way to prepare you for it. It kind of takes on the signature of the plant medicine that it's with or, or around or going to be used before. Um, so, you know, I think that each of them have their, have value, you know, and have their own um, offering, you know, and, and process for us and, yeah, I'm not a purist in that way. You know, I do feel like it's really important to stay within the traditions that we come from and to honor indigenous practices. I don't feel like I should pour ayahuasca medicine because I don't come from that tradition. That's not, you know, so so ketamine feels, I feel very clean about offering that medicine, you know, and I feel very clean with what I offer in my meditations because I'm using my tradition my heritage that I've come from, you know, and I've been in very much in alignment. I mean, Jung was, was practicing right around where part of my family lived. So I don't know how much more I could go back to my roots, you know? Um, but I think that's really important is to, you know, in, in, while we're talking about that, you know, that co- in that conversation, I think it's really important to honor the traditions that these practices come from, mm-hmm. you know, I do not think that you, drink ayahuasca once and then you're like serving it in the suburbs of, you know, Santa Cruz or wherever you are. That just doesn't quite feel like it's in alignment to mm-hmm. honor where it comes from, you know?
0: Yeah, well, that brings us full circle back to Nietzsche. One of his other complaints is if if you're, if you're there's no history involved what you're doing, then that's also a mistake. When he was talking about these mistakes that philosophers of the past um, have mm-hmm. made, uh, the mm-hmm. idea that uh, yeah, that we're not contextualized beings and that that we can ignore history um, is uh, for, for Nietzsche a mistake. Mm-hmm. So I, I appreciate that as well and I appreciate everything you're doing. I, I hope we can maybe have another dialogue someday, but I, I thank you. Yeah, it was really fun. To, I really enjoyed this. Yeah, yeah, yeah thanks for having too. me. And thanks to all of you for listening. I again, we'll have links to Sunny's website in the show notes and if you have any stories about your experience with psychedelic medicines or medicines of any kind therapies of any kind confronting the dark places in the soul the dark places of wisdom love and beauty send them in through dangerouswisdom.org might be able to bring some of them into a future contemplation or a dialogue If Sunny comes back, we can ask her your questions, or who knows what magic will unfold. Until then, this is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, reminding you that your soul and the soul of the world are not two things. Take good care of them.